Beloved congregation of the Lord, let's uh, look again in Hebrews chapter 12 and let's look at verse 7. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. But what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons." Every single person has an interest in knowing whether they are in a state of grace. That is, whether they are truly saved people, whether they are partakers of that eternal salvation, reconciled unto God, forgiven of their sins, and headed for an eternal inheritance. And so, since this is so important, It's also important that the regular preaching of the word include what's called the marks of grace. For in one way we could say that it's all very straightforward. If you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. And so people here may say, well, I believe in Christ and so I am saved. And yet we, we know, don't we, uh, there is a, a true saving faith as well as a, as a false counterfeit. We need to know that our faith is genuine. We need to know that we truly believe in Christ. And so the, the apostle who wrote Hebrews, he especially had this in mind. You notice how he uh, continues from where we were beginning in, uh, in the morning service as he laid out this, this principle from the Lord's chastisement, that the Lord has a loving purpose for these tests and trials in the, the lives of his children. And so he seeks to improve this doctrine by setting forth how it is we may know if we are true children of God, true partakers of grace, those with saving faith. He says, if ye endure chastising, God dealeth with you as with sons. And then in verse 8, the other side, if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons? So you see that he's actually borrowing up a principle from human society. You have uh, some sons who have a father who cares for them, who loves them, who disciplines them, who ensures that they are brought up towards maturity. And you have have other sons who maybe are the product of an illegitimate marriage or whatever it may be, and so they don't have a father in their life. And we know that that's a very, very sad thing. There's something about having a father which is a wonderful gift, particularly a father who loves you, 
and disciplines you when you do wrong and, and encourages you to do right. And so there's also this parallel he's, he's saying when it comes to people who truly are in a state of grace, they will endure under this chastisement. And likewise, those who are but false professors, those who have no saving faith, they are ultimately not those who are chastised at all. They don't have a heavenly father who loves them and cares for them. They are without God in the world. And so this is the principle that is laid before us, this mark of grace whereby we are to test ourselves. Do we have this endurance, as it is spoken of there in in verse 7? It's a principle that's laid forth in other parts of Scripture, isn't it? That you can tell a false faith and a a true faith from whether they endure opposition and testing from the circumstances of life. Jesus himself spoke of of this in Matthew chapter 10 and verses 21 to 22 when he was preparing his disciples for the days of intense persecution after his return to heaven. Matthew 10, verse 21, Jesus said this, And the brother shall deliver up brother to death, and the father the child, and the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. Well, you might say that, that given all those kinds of things, like your, your very family trying to kill you and disowning you, being hated of everyone, you think if there ever there was an excuse for faith to fail and to, and to flicker into, into nothing, it would surely be that. And yet Christ is, is very clear that where faith does not endure. It is not true faith. It's likewise what he said in Matthew chapter 13 in his great parable of the soils. Matthew 13 and verse 20 and 21. But he that received the seed into stony places, the same is he that heareth the word, and anon with joy receiveth it. Yet hath he no root in himself, but he endureth for a while. And when tribulation or persecution ariseth because of the word, by and by, he is offended. So again, there's this principle, isn't there? That the faith that is saving will endure even the hardships of persecution. A very relevant message for the Jewish church to which this epistle was addressed. It is setting forth this mark of grace, of enduring faith. And so it's what I'd like to consider with you for a few moments this afternoon. I'd like to open up some of the, the aspects of this truth of, of enduring the Lord's chastening. Enduring the Lord's chastening. And I hope we'll carry forward some of the, the things we, we considered this morning. But especially applying 
this, this point of the examination of, of ourselves, whether we have this endurance which is spoken of here. And as I've been studying this, this chapter, I, I think the best way to sort of examine this, this truth from the Word of God is to consider two thoughts. First, the meaning of this endurance and the means of this endurance. So the first thought, the meaning, will answer sort of the what question. What, what is this uh, endurance of which we speak? And in the second place, I'd like to, to consider the means of this endurance, how it is that this works out in an individual Christian. So, enduring the Lord's chastening. First, the meaning of this endurance, and second, the means of this endurance. So what is it that is meant by enduring? If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons, it says in in verse 7. What is it that that is exactly? What is a faith that endures? Well, I think that it's helpful to look at a number of things in this chapter that sort of flesh out this thought. And I'd I'd like us to consider them them seriously. And uh, the first thing I I think we can say about this enduring is that we should uh, compare it to the endurance of Christ. Compare it to the endurance of Christ. Because the very same word that's used in verse 7, it's also used in verse 3. If you'll go up there in the chapter... You notice that it speaks of Christ in this way in verse 3. But for consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. So as we saw this morning, this is the great burden of the apostle and, and of the Holy Spirit speaking through him. There is this danger of fainting, of despairing, of of the grace of God. And so there's this exhortation not to faint. But the means of doing that is to consider Christ, and especially to consider his endurance in the face of all manner of sinners that he experienced in life. And I think we we ought to to see that this is the, the foundation of any true saving faith that will endure. It is a faith that looks to Christ as the author and finisher of our faith, as is said there in verse 2, and and especially in his obedience on our behalf. Christ, in his life, perfectly endured in the mission that was appointed to him. He encountered all kinds of different sinners, and yet he never failed in the holy requirements that God placed upon him. You could think of the sinners that he experienced in his own family. He had sinful parents, sinful siblings that he grew up with, and yet he endured. You consider 
how, as you see in his disciples, right, how often Peter and James and John, how often they, they sinned against their Lord, how often they, they were so uh, small in faith and slow in understanding, how often they, they gave in to the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, had to be warned against this prideful expression of sin and, and that, that sin as well. And yet he endured. And of course, his enemies, they reviled him, they hated him, they accused him. The false teachers of the law, they accused him of having devils. He was brought before Pontius Pilate and and was asked contemptuously, are you the king of the Jews? From the beginning of his life to the end of his life, he endured a relentless assault from sinners. Consider his pure, spotless heart and conscience. What it was to to love the Lord as God with such a pure heart. And then to be exposed with all the foulness and pollution of this world under the bondage of the devil. And yet perfectly he endures in the mission that is set before him. He, he, He believes in his God with a perfect faith. He, he serves his God with a perfect obedience. Were it not for that, then our faith would avail nothing. If it did not lay hold of Christ and his righteousness on our behalf, there would be, be no hope for us. And it's in this capacity as our mediator that Christ is spoken of in this chapter, isn't it? Go down to verse 24. Speaking of Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, of the blood of sprinkling, that speaketh better things than that of Abel. He suffered all the way to his death, to the shedding of blood. Were it not so, none of us could be saved. But I think it's especially this that's being highlighted in verse 3, not merely that our faith looks to him and considers him as his obedience upon our behalf, but also as our example. As our example, and I... I emphasize that because you'll notice how he immediately in verse 3 transitions to, our, to ourselves and our own lives. Consider him that endured such contradictions of sinners against himself, lest he be wearied and faint in your minds. The idea here is that if there is this true faith in Christ, it will give forth in true Christ-likeness. The reality is that for someone who is a true believer, there ought to be that same steadfastness in principle, that same endurance and patience and love that existed in the Lord Jesus. It ought to be be breaking through in our own lives as well. A standard that the Christian compares himself to is not this person in their life or that person in their life or the the average person in the church. No, it's by the standard of perfection. Jesus Christ. Are you living like Christ? Are you enduring with the endurance of Christ? That is held forth here in in the first place when we consider the meaning of this endurance. And the second thing I'd, I'd draw out here is that the meaning is, is explained if we would consider the calling of a Christian. The calling of a Christian in verse 4. 
right after that verse 3 that we just considered. Look at verse 4. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. We considered that verse somewhat this morning, but I'd like to come back to it and and consider really the full weight of what is, is being said here. This is supposed to be an exhortation. And it's an exhortation to people who are in the grip of very serious persecution. These are the people who Christ spoke about being sold, sold out and, 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 and otherwise by their parents and by their siblings, by those who are closest to them. The entire Jewish community hated them, wanted to expel them from, from everything of society, to rob them of the very means of life. And yet, where they are beginning to, to falter, beginning to grow weary, this is the, the word that's meant to encourage them. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood. He's saying, remember what your calling is as a Christian. It's not merely to serve Christ when it is easy, nor is it merely to serve Christ when it is hard. It is to serve all the way unto death, even to the shedding of their blood, which apparently they had not not yet experienced. And the striving against sin refers especially to this. Are they going to have a faith and an endurance which continues even all the way to death? That is what what you see Jesus speaking about on on no uncertain terms in Matthew 16, verses 24 to 26. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? If you would be Christ's disciple, if you would be a Christian, you must enter into the death march. The cross, that instrument of death, that instrument of the bloody persecution of the worst of offenders, He's saying, if you would truly be a Christian, that is what you are signing up for. You must be willing not only to give up everything that would be opposed to the calling of a Christian. You must be willing also to give up even your very self, even your very life, to give up everything for the sake of Jesus Christ. That is what is is said here. It's very clear that when we consider the calling of a Christian, it is something that should challenge us. The sort of things that would would leave us reeling, leave us discouraged, leave us us even on the, the point where we would be tempted to despair. The Word of God comes to us and says, do you really understand what it is to be a Christian? Jesus says that you must come and die if you would follow him. So that, in the second place, 
not only the endurance of Christ, but also the calling of, of a Christian is held forth here. And the third thing I think will help us understand the meaning of this endurance is the tears of Esau. The tears of Esau. And I wonder if, if you picked up on that in, in the reading earlier on in the service. But there's this, this vivid example that is set forth here in the life of a man from the Old Testament history. Let's begin reading at verse 15, and then we'll, we'll kind of get the whole picture in one swoop. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For ye know that how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. Well, it's interesting. If you would, would read later on the, the history about Esau from Genesis 25, you'd know that there's, there's interesting parallels there with the language of this chapter. You know that there were those two brothers, Jacob and, and Esau, twin brothers. And you know that they were, were descended from their father Isaac. And Isaac was to bestow the blessing of the Lord, representing that eternal covenant of grace, whereby they would, would know God as their God and their descendants with them. And so that was to pass on to one of these two sons. And then uh, the older southern son, by the name of Esau, on one occasion returns from hunting. And he, he says to his brother, I faint. Give me something to eat. And so Jacob, who coveted that blessing of the covenant, he, he said, well, you're going to have to swear to me that you'll give me that birthright. And so hungry for that, that, that meat, for that stew, was Esau, that he sold that birthright. He said, okay, I'll part with God, I'll part with the covenant, I'll part with all the blessings that God would bestow because of something that I crave, food. And what is the lesson being, being drawn here? Well, there's that warning, isn't there? There's that warning that even in the face of these challenging times that they were living in, even in the face of the very high calling of a Christian, even to imitate Jesus Christ, the very perfect one, he's saying, don't you dare. Don't you dare sell your birthright. Don't you dare turn your back upon the gospel and salvation. Don't you falter and fail and give up. No, you must endure. You must endure. And you notice how, how he sort of draws out some, some specific sins that are, are at issue here. He says there, doesn't he, um, in verse uh, 16, lest there be any fornicator, sexual uncleanness, 
sexual sin. God is, is held forth here as, as the sort of thing that could cause you to fall into the very trap of Esau. It speaks of profane person. It's sort of the opposite of holy. And, and so it has the idea of someone who's not living a life separated unto God and to his worship and to his ordinances, to his, his means of grace. And so you have sort of the second table of the law and the, the first table of the law set forth here. And, and the, the, the picture here is that for the one who is so enslaved to such sins, they cannot part with them. And they are in the, in the position of, of this Esau. It says, you notice in verse 17, you know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance. Though he sought it carefully with tears. You notice there's that distinction, right? There is a difference, isn't there, between seeking repentance and actually having repentance, even seeking it with tears, even shedding tears for your lack of repentance is not true repentance. This true faith that endures unto life eternal, it always is joined with a true repentance and not not merely emotional posturing. And the alternative is, is the alternative of this poor man Esau sold his birthright. And, and we know afterward when Jacob uh, was the one who received that blessing, he, he shed tears and there was no comparable blessing from his father for him. So there's a challenging picture, we must say, that the meaning of this endurance points us to something that is very high, that is very holy, that is beyond the, the strength of any human faith. So we must ask the question, not only the meaning of this endurance, but also the means of this endurance. How is it that this is worked out? How is it that this, this is realized in the life of a Christian? Well, I'd, I'd bring us back to, to verse 9 and, and consider what we see here. And in the in the first place, I want us to see that, that there's this that's emphasized about the enduring faith of the Christian, and that is that it offers subjection unto God as Father. Notice in verse 9. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh, which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits, and live. It's an interesting parallel here. You've got the fathers of our flesh, and you've got the father of spirits. The fathers of our flesh, who would those be? Well, those would be our earthly fathers. The man you call dad or father. And as you grew up, I'm, I'm sure you, you recognized that you were to offer him, him subjection. You were to treat him as your father, honor him as your father, obey him as your father, love him as your father. You were to trust him as your father. That was how we did it. And, and you'll notice that if we had that kind of, of wholesome relation with a, with a true father, that that was binding upon us whether or not they, they were perfect. Of course, they weren't perfect, our, our fathers. He notices that in 
and verse 10. For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. So their discipline of, of us, sometimes it was too soft, sometimes it was too harsh. That's how it is with us fathers, isn't it? Sometimes we imperfectly administer that chastisement or discipline according to our own selfish motives, not investing in our, our children in a godly way. And yet, look at this. There is a perfect father here. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the father of spirits and live? Yes, we receive much from our, our fathers according to the flesh. We maybe received our eye color, our hair color, and so much else about us. But here is the Father who, who breathes forth the life of the Spirit, the soul. The living soul is a creation of God. He is the creator of us. He knows us intimately and perfectly. And we can know him not merely as a creator, but as a Father in Jesus Christ. To be in subjection unto him in a living relationship. That is true life. That's why he says, doesn't he? Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? That's a good flip it around, couldn't you? If you won't be in subjection unto him, if you won't really relate to God as your Father, as he's held forth in the gospel, then that is death. Be apart from God is death. But to have God as your God, to surrender yourself unto him, to steadfastly trust him, to love him, to hear his voice speaking to you. And to see this is not just words on the page. No, this is the word of my father. And his promises, they are, they are speaking to me as of a father to his son. And his commandments, that is the will of my Father for me. So we surrender everything to him. We hold nothing back. Yes, there is, there is imperfection in this, in this subjection, in this surrender, in this obedience unto the Father. But that is what is needful in the act of true faith. Where it is not the case that we will own God as our Father, and have him own us as his, as his sons. And there can, be, there can be nothing of this true endurance. For it comes from the life that he gives by faith that we are able to do this. Well, you'll notice how, how it's sort of uh, continued here. There's not only a total subjection, but there is... A serious repentance. This is, is how it's, it's realized in our lives as Christians. Look at the second half of verse 10 there. Oh, let's read the whole verse of 10. But they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Where it's setting forth this requirement of obedience. You see how, how serious this is. It comprehends the very character of God. 
and the standard of that holiness upon every area of our lives. God says to his children, Be ye holy, for I am holy. That is what is set forth here. If it is a serious repentance that we have in our lives, it is because in principle we are seeing everything that is contrary to God, it must go. Everything that is opposed to God, we must oppose. Anything that God requires, we must gladly surrender that to him. Where there is a relationship with God and where there is an enduring faith, that is the kind of repentance that exists. And we're not saying by this that there is ever a perfect repentance. It's not as though you can set forth a repentance that fails in no respect. But, but if it is serious repentance, then in principle you're saying that you embrace it all. That you will not tolerate any sin in your life. You will declare war on all sin in your life. You will embrace all that makes for true holiness. So we see this. And uh, also under this heading of, of serious repentance, look at verse 11. Verse 11 in the, in the second half. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. It's that which is the evidence of, of true enduring faith. That in the midst of the afflictions of life, it actually yields the result of the fruits of righteousness. The one who can, can look in their life and they can see that there is a conquering of sin. There is advancing of the strongholds of Satan. Advancing against those strongholds. Conquering more and more areas of our life unto Jesus Christ. There is a true progressive sanctification as we seek to grow into the likeness of God. But to the one who has not the resources of the almighty God at work in their life, they are still slaves to sin. They are still in bondage to sin. And so the fruits of the Spirit, of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, those things against which there is no law, they will be absent. So we must ask, where are your fruits? Where are those fruits of righteousness? You notice how they are set forth here as the peaceable fruits of righteousness. They are the fruits that, that make peace possible. True peace of conscience. True confidence in this world, knowing that you are reconciled unto God, knowing that your faith in Christ is genuine. But where it is absent, where you are not exercising yourself unto this, this righteousness, can you live in such a way, in confidence that you are a true Christian? Or must you not need to say that today is the day that we get serious with sin? that we have serious repentance in our lives and that by God's grace we seek to endure in the, in the kind of victorious life that is set forth here. 
I'd like to, to close by, by considering what we see in, in chapter 12 and verse 1. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. That's the picture here. When, when the Lord is, is not working in our life, when we are unconverted, and the things that are set forth here, they seem as though they are impossible. How is it that we could truly have Christ as our example? How is it that we could, uh, we could enter into this call of a true Christian? How is it that we could ward off the, the sin of Esau, selling out our birthright? How is it we could offer total subjection unto God? How is it we could have true repentance? Well, apart from the Spirit of God, it is impossible. But where that Spirit is at work, it is as simple as, as letting down a weight. Think about that marathon runner who is trying to get that prize, trying to, to get to that finish line. I have no, no business holding on to that, that heavy knapsack, to that barbell, to all the other things that would hinder their advance. No, they come to see, I don't have to hold on to this any longer. So they let it drop to the ground, and they give themselves to running the race that is set before them. Here are the, are the, are the paths of our fathers and, and mothers in the faith. Even these these people who were exhorted by the apostle, many of them, those who were true believers, they have, have run that race and they have entered into glory. Would it not be a wonderful sight to consider them cheering us on? But the greatest sight of all would be, as it says in verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Is set down, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. From that throne congregation, he cheers on his people and says, now is the time to truly live. Amen.